The message you are about to hear is produced and distributed by the Living Church of God as a free educational service. Edited reproduction is prohibited. Copyright Living Church of God. All rights reserved. Got a uh, message not long ago from a friend of mine, and it was a message informing me of uh, one of our fellow uh, ministers who uh, was opting to no longer work with us, and uh, in the process of our discussing cause and and the reasons of... uh, why he uh, was not going to continue. He said, well, he had all of these uh, uh, complaints. And uh, the most uh, compelling one and the most telling one I thought that he gave me was that, uh, uh, according to him, uh, I, meaning me, myself, and I, uh, am very carnal. You know, uh, initially, when I heard that, I thought, wow, you know, that's quite a uh, terrible thing to, uh, to be. And uh, so I started uh, examining myself, <clears throat> checking uh, myself, and sure enough, I found that he was right. I am still carnal. Yeah, many years ago, uh, when I first began to uh, attend the church and read the literature and whatever, I heard individuals in the church speak judgmentally of others as carnal, not being knowledgeable, of course, of what uh, church jargon meant, and uh, not being aware that in the church is an awful lot of judgmentalism. Uh, I had no reference, I guess, by which to interpret such comments, And so I thought being carnal was probably the most awful, sinful condition you could be in. Um, What about carnality? Am I really and truly carnal? Are you? If we are carnal, by what standard are we judged? And, of course, the following question to that would be, and by whom? How are we to understand carnality? And more importantly, what are we to do about it when we do understand it? Are we to judge other people carnal, as is commonly done within the church? Some, I think, use the statement by the Apostle Paul to narrowly define carnality, according to their own narrow-minded understanding. And I'm referring to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. First, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and let's begin in verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For you are yet carnal. For whereas 
there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. Now then, by this uh, statement, and considering uh, the condition of the church in Corinth, it uh, it's very, seems very clear that uh, being carnal is, uh, is a major problem. And uh, yet, if we really understand Paul's definition as he, by application, uh, gives it in, in the context of other scriptures, then we have to come to understand that the word is used in a dual sense. Number one, meaning physical things, things are, that is, things which pertain to the flesh. To be carnal, or things which are carnal, is to speak of things which pertain to the flesh. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. Uh, Beginning, let's start in verse 9 to get the uh, context. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Does, Does God care for oxen? Or saith he, it altogether for our sakes, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that plows should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. Parenthetically then, verse 11, if I have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Now, the Apostle Paul is speaking here of receiving, accepting, and taking tithes and offerings of the church at Corinth. (coughs) In this particular case, things which are carnal are, strictly speaking, things which pertain to the flesh. Things which are physical, or things which pertain to the flesh. The second uh, application of the word carnal is the spiritual application or uh, the application of physical-mindedness as opposed to spiritual-mindedness. Things which are spiritual and things which are physical are obviously like two extremes or opposite poles of the object. The Apostle Paul or the writer of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. In speaking of matters pertaining to uh, uh, the Old Covenant, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and just get it in context so that we don't misapply. Let's get the uh, context a bit earlier. (coughs) He's talking about 
here Melchizedek and his, uh, uh, his ministry or, or uh, priesthood. And, uh, and then he speaks of <clears throat> how there is such a contrast between the, uh, the physical and the spiritual applications of, of the uh, priesthood. Let's start in verse 11 to get the context. <clears throat> he said, if Melchizedek, I'm sorry, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood, that is, those descendants of Judah had no authority or right or permission to serve before the altar. It had to be a son of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. Verse 15, And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there arises another priest. Now Melchizedek preceded Aaron, so therefore he was not of Aaron or a tribe of Levi either just as Jesus, who is after the order of Melchizedek, was not of the tribe of Levi. So, <clears throat> who is made not after the law of carnal commandments, a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now then, we have here a contrast between the uh, physical sacrificial system which was implemented under the direction of Moses and Aaron and, of course, the Levitical system which, uh, which followed, which flowed from that uh, priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. And contrasted to this is the priesthood of Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek, which was a spiritual order and not a uh, one after the flesh, following a particular family, if you please. And so we have <clears throat> then these two applications of the word carnal. We have carnal, meaning physical, pure and simple, and carnal as opposed to being spiritual. And so we have to understand how to apply these, these two uh, applications of the word carnal, uh, I, I would kind of liken this, <clears throat> by the way, to the distinction between uh, just regular southwestern Chile. Uh, out here we speak of chili con carne, which means chili with meat, right? But now we have Texas chili, and that Texas chili isn't like southwestern Chile in that Chile in Texas is beef, boy, and don't you forget it. And if you want that other stuff, you have to ask for chili with beans. 
unlike, of course, out here where you have to order the meat, either with or without the carne. In the same way, physical versus spiritual is the key question and what we're concerned about. And when people then speak pejoratively or judgmentally of another person and say another person is carnal, <clears throat> typically they are judging that individual. They are judging his heart based upon what they perceive his actions indicate. Um, Romans chapter 7. Now, in order to understand <coughs> Romans chapter 7 and 8, I guess it really would require, to understand it, you, you almost have to take the whole book and uh, you have to, uh, to get the flow. But simply put, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaks about burying the old man in baptism, uh, a symbolical burial of the old self. And uh, that then is followed by a resurrection coming up out of that watery grave. It's all in symbol. And walking or living in newness of life. This is all outlined in Romans chapter 6. Then, <clears throat> in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul wrote, verse 1, Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, now, we understand, of course, that, uh, again, the, uh, uh, the law of washings and sacrifices, in another place he refers to as carnal ordinances, fleshly ordinances, things which pertain to this flesh. And, essentially, if we, if we understand, if I understand correctly, it's speaking of those things which are to be done either by the person or the priest or both in order that an individual may be reconciled into the community. Again, the religious community and come before God with the community in service. Know you not, brethren, that I, but for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, the law says, <clears throat> in effect, every one of us has sin, and the wage of sin is death. He just wrote it in the preceding verse. The wages of sin is death. So, therefore, he is speaking of the, the law which says we're all going to die because we are flesh. And it says, sure is the rising of tomorrow's sun. For the woman which has an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. This, of course, is apart from any outside interference of the state or society at large. He's speaking in God's, God's eyes. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. 
But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. <clears throat> the fact of his death is the determining factor in whether she is under the law, that is, bound to her husband, or loose from that law, that is, freed. Wherefore, verse 4, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And so this process that he had described in chapter 6 of the death burial of the old man coming up to walk in newness of life, now is also he is comparing it to a marriage. And once the husband or one party is deceased, then the other is freed to be married again. Therefore, he is saying that we have been put to death symbolically by the baptismal burial experience or action. Verse 5. For when we were in the flesh... And, of course, the flesh, when we were carnal, in the flesh, but he is applying this in the spiritual sense, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. <clears throat> but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter going through the rituals, going through the, the motions of going to a, through a ceremony and a sacrificial uh, action, the washings, uh, all of that which pertain to the Levitical system. He is saying then that that's all, in effect, that is buried. Verse 7, the oldness of the letter is gone. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That wasn't a sin. It was the Levitical system and the Levitical law was not a sin. God forbid. No more of a sin than the spiritual law which God established before the earth was ever founded. Because spiritual law of righteousness, that is, rightness, precedes even man. If that were not the case, then Lucifer or Satan could not be held accountable for actions which were committed by him before the creation of man. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For what without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. And then he says, concerning himself, and by this time the apostle Paul had been in the work of God and a servant of Jesus Christ for, what, 10 to 15 years. 
For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was, uh, we, uh, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, works death in me that which is good, working death. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law, verse 14, is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is the more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, in this carnal man, in the carnal nature, he says, I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. <clears throat> For the good that I would do I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. This carnal flesh, this carnal nature, which is a, so much a part of, well, it's part of me. And the man branded me as carnal because he saw that it's a part of me. Somewhere along the line, I offended him. And I probably did something, said something that was offensive. So therefore, I'm carnal. And he's right. I can't deny it. And as Paul said, I find then a law that when I would do good... Evil is present with me, and <coughs> this particular individual I sought to do good to and for, and undoubtedly and inevitably it must have turned out it was evil. And I'm sorry. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, <coughs> the Apostle Paul wrote, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Verse 24, Paul bared his soul and revealed his innermost feeling when he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? I don't think any person who has who, who desires to serve God and who tries to serve other people has any feeling other than <clears throat> sorrow when uh, others are hurt. When trying to do good, others are offended. But it's going to happen. It has happened and it will happen in the future. 
Well then, who is going to deliver us? He says, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, this life is a struggle, <clears throat> and it always has been, always will be. I received, uh, oh, I don't know, let's see, must be about 12 or 14 page letter <clears throat> here, uh, like so, uh, and uh, this particular letter takes uh, great umbrage <clears throat> at... Uh, what is going on in the church of God today, and it is sad, and it is uh, certainly despicable, I think, to see uh, all of the carnality that is extant in the church of God. We are, we have demonstrated, we have proven that we are very carnal. Again and again and again and again. And I personally don't think I have known any individual, and I don't think I have worked with any individual who has not evidenced some carnality, whether we're talking about the flesh or whether we're talking about the spirit, or in the spiritual sense. Because we're, as Paul was, we're still in this flesh, struggling and fighting against the nature of sin that is within us. And it will go on. <clears throat> it will not end. I uh, recently was given a book <clears throat> by an elder entitled That Dark and Bloody River by Alan Eckert. It's a uh, book about the Ohio River and the, the conflict uh, during the Indian Wars, even pre preceding the Revolutionary War, on through the War of 1812. If you want a study in human nature, and if you want a uh, beautiful example of, of how, uh, of the folly of particularly American politics, you ought to read the book because it illustrates again and again graphically how the vanity of individuals, the lust and the greed of individuals <coughs> is evidenced in what is known as the conquest of the Northwest Territory. Ohio, Kentucky, uh, Indiana, Illinois, and so on that dark and bloody river. Individuals who have great esteem in our eyes historically, who have had great esteem, were involved in land speculation and land deals and land grabbing, and as a result, of course, in a great deal of bloodletting, some of the most horrible crimes uh, I have ever read in my life descriptive accounts of the murders and the slaughter and the, the uh, torture of human beings in that conflict. So the Apostle Paul then 
speaks of carnality as being what we are, every one of us, naturally, and then of the struggle which we have because we have, through repentance and confession, baptism, receiving the Spirit of God, in having indwelling that new nature, the spiritual nature, and then the conflict that we are uh, enduring because of it. <clears throat> the law may be said to be spiritual because it comes from God and because it reaches into the very core, the very nature of man. The, the law is so designed, the law of God is so designed that it cuts right into the heart and the core of man, the very innermost being. There is no part of you, there is no part of me that the law of God does not cut into and touch because it is spiritual. The law of God requires truth in the inward parts <coughs> if we're going to be at peace with God. The law of God requires spiritual service and obedience, not just from the external action, but from inside, from the heart. And it requires a serving of God with the mind and not just the hand. It requires worshiping God in spirit and truth. It requires a love of God with all our hearts and our souls, because it cannot be truly obeyed and conformed to without the assistance of the Spirit of God indwelling. Therefore, the law is spiritual. Now, <clears throat> again, the Apostle Paul recognized the dichotomy between his carnal, that is, his natural nature, and the spiritual nature which was indwelling by the Spirit of God. And as a result, Paul struggled within himself to overcome, to change, to deal with that spiritual nature. The Apostle Paul also, in struggling to help that church at Corinth, dealing with the problems at Corinth, <clears throat> had to deal with it as a conflict between the carnal, the physical, and the spiritual. Back in 1 Corinthians again, <clears throat> chapter 2, we read earlier in chapter 3, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul wrote in verse 1, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with ex uh, excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. If, uh, if he had been using uh, high-sounding and uh, erudite terminology, then, then those people would not have understood the simplicity of the way of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, Paul was very single-minded. The apostle Paul was very direct and focused. 
For, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. The Apostle Paul recognized his humanness and his weakness. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, which, of course, came from God and from the, the force of the word itself, this, this word which he was using, and not from the words and philosophy of men. That your faith, verse 5, should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because the wisdom of men is like air, a puff of smoke, and it's gone. Verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, and the Greek word is teleos, which means those who are coming to full age, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, Every eye hath not every eye hath not seen, I'm sorry, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. There are some things which you and I cannot comprehend because we are carnal. We are we're somewhat in the condition of the the little chick in the egg. Have <clears throat> you ever thought about what it was like for a, a little chick to be in an egg? And at that time, all that little chick knows is just that what it can perceive, if anything, from within that, that little shell. But the time comes when it breaks out of that shell. And it sees everything. But does it really? No, it doesn't. It has no knowledge and no comprehension of the hawk. But mother knows about the hawk. The old hen knows. And when she senses a hawk flying overhead, she spreads her wings and she goes into hiding if possible, but if not possible, she spreads her wings so that the little chicks can take shelter under her wings. But the chicks don't have any comprehension, yet they're no longer inside that little shell. In the same way, when we receive the Spirit of God, we break out of that enclosure of pure carnality. Total carnality. Nothing but the flesh being totally devoted to and exercised by the needs, the desires, the drives, the pulls of the flesh. But we're sure not totally controlled or motivated or dedicated to or uh, within the ramifications, full ramifications of the spirit. Because we just simply can't comprehend it. And we can't because of the limitations that are within. 
For he said, God has revealed these things to us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Animals can't know what is within man because they have no, no means of comprehending. They can only understand what we teach them by signals and by other means. They cannot understand the mind, the thinking that goes behind it. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And this is the distinction between the carnal and the spiritual. But he that is spiritual, verse 15 1 Corinthians 2.15, He that is spiritual judges all things. The one who is spiritual is weighing and evaluating and making a discernment. He, his mind and his attitude has been heightened by the Spirit of God within so that he is evaluating and weighing and not simply going on impulse according to the nature of the natural mind. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, Paul wrote. <clears throat> now, he, pro he proceeds after having said, we have the mind of Christ and we, we have this power from God within, whereby we are able to evaluate and to judge. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he goes further and says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, because of this inability, this, this natural factor which we are all contending with, which is human nature and the carnal mind, the carnal man. You know something? <clears throat> I believe, and I may be wrong, I, I, but I just, in observing and thinking of the, the people who are so quick to judge other people on this matter of the spiritual and the, the carnal, I am persuaded, personally, that one of the most carnal things that we do is to judge others in the spiritual sense. Isn't that amazing? To speak of others as being carnal and to, to speak judgmentally of other people is of itself totally carnal. 
Rather, the spiritual mind doesn't condemn and judge, but it seeks to help, to inform, to instruct, and to encourage. It's, it strives and it has the, the, the desire not to put down and judge and condemn, but it has the desire to help and to enlighten and to lead and strengthen. There's a comparison that uh, some of the uh, uh, commentaries draws <clears throat> between First uh, Corinthians 3 and this thing of the carnal nature to First Kings chapter 21, specifically verse 20, uh, where um, King Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O mine enemy? And Elijah answered, I found you because you have sold yourself to do that which is evil in the sight of the eternal. And then in verse 25, 1 Kings 21, 25, there was none like unto Ahab who did sell himself to do that which was evil in the sight of the eternal, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Now, and you go back and read the story of Ahab. And Ahab was a very weak man. Ahab was a covetous man. And his actions, his conduct, spoke volumes of his character. And so we understand that, that selling oneself virtually to Satan, selling oneself to covetousness, selling oneself to the flesh is what the Apostle Paul is comparing to the carnal and the carnal nature and the carnal mind. As opposed, of course, to those who have not sold out to the flesh and who strive to overcome and to change and to resist the flesh by the Spirit of God indwelling. So, <clears throat> what we see then is that carnality is used of that which is physical, fleshy, or fleshly, as opposed to that which is spiritual. And the Apostle Paul, when he said they were carnal, he is saying that their minds were centered on the things of the flesh, and, and if we then notice the very things which they were concerned about, they were, they were extolling men. Some were holding Apollos up as, as the, the great cheese, you know. Others were saying, oh no, I follow Peter. He's the, big, he's the big wheel. They were comparing the leadership of the church, and these all were men of character and, and spiritual giants of, in, in that time. But these people, in their carnal minds, and their carnal thinking, were comparing among these men, and then they were, in effect, causing division, and they were actually, would have, could have, in effect, pitted these men one against the other. 
by their argumentation and by their extolling and, and boasting of this hero or that hero or the, uh, this leader or that one. And so the Apostle Paul said, this is carnal. And the fruit of it, the evidence of it is envy, strife, contention, lust, and greed. That's what it says in <clears throat> chapter 3. But notice Paul's attitude. Now, Paul said he was carnal. He accepted that he was carnal. And the first step in really dealing with the carnality that we all have is recognizing that we have it, accepting that we have it, that we have to do battle against it. And so he said, let a man, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 4, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He takes the focus off of himself, Peter, Apollos, others, and he focuses it on Jesus Christ. Moreover, it is required as stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. So, Paul was the target in this instance. The Apostle Paul, who had raised up this church at Corinth, who had given himself for them, was the one who, who was the, the focus of their contention and their strife. And they were using Peter and Apollos and others as their champions, but the real focus was the Apostle Paul. You know, <clears throat> I've learned something in the last year, I think. There have there has been a great deal of resentment aired toward individuals, individual leaders in the church today. But when you really look at the source of it all and the resentment and evaluate their resentment, do you know who their resentment is really against? He is dead. He died 13 years ago. You know who I mean. The resentment which is directed toward the leadership in the church of God today, a high percentage of it was resentment of Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and people just simply didn't have the integrity to speak up and say they resented the man and his policies, his direction of the work of God. They didn't dare because they were intimidated by the authority and the power. There is a great deal of pent-up resentment against Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong and his, his administration of the work of God. To this day, the majority of those who held that kind of resentment, rather than wholeheartedly supporting the work of God and his direction of the work of God, the greater majority of those people have scattered like quail and dispersed. 
And so the Apostle Paul then says, verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. The Apostle Paul was looking forward and not looking back. The Apostle Paul was concerned about tomorrow and the next day and the next year and getting on with doing the work of God so much that he wasn't looking back. But these people were. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified? But he that judges me is the Lord. And Jesus Christ is the one who is going to weigh and evaluate not only the deeds of individuals, but the attitude of heart of those individuals as they did them. Therefore, verse 5, Paul said, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. He is saying, in effect, if I may put it in the vernacular of our day, get over it. Just get over it. You have a problem with what I, the way I taught? Get over it. You have a problem with the way I administered the church here at Corinth? Let's get over it. Let's go on. Let's get past it. You didn't like Apollos? Get over it. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. Because chances are, certainly all of those men they were judging, Apollos, Peter, Paul, and others, we're all will have the praise of God in the resurrection, in the judgment. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. The Apostle Paul put it on himself and on Apollos because they were the two chief and leading individuals who had taught and worked with this church at Corinth. And he was not afraid or ashamed to accept the responsibility and to put the spotlight upon himself. This is what he is saying. That you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. You know, it is awfully flattering when, when, <clears throat> when people speak highly of us and and uh, it's, it's just so flattering to have people say, oh I, just, oh, I just really love to hear you. I don't really think too much of, you know, Mr. So-and-so over there. And uh, he's, uh, he just doesn't really, you know, he's kind of dull. Besides that, he's dumb. I, I, hey, I've heard this. I left the congregation in 1969... 30 years ago, after having served there for eight years. And um, I went back and I was appalled at the attitude that all these wonderful people, people I had had a wonderful relationship to or with, and I was appalled 
at the attitude of so many and how they pitted and held me and the other man. He, he stayed, if I remember correctly, about six months that he asked to be transferred. He wanted out. He couldn't take it anymore. It taught me a lesson. Because I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate it. And most of those people got over it in a, after a period of time. <clears throat> As a result, I did not go back to that congregation. I did not go back and visit. I did not maintain contacts in that congregation any further. I cut my ties with that congregation and made it a custom or habit. From that time on, when I left an area to try to break and at least to, uh, to not maintain intimate ties, close ties with the people in the previous congregation because to do so can cause so much grief for the man who is currently pastoring. Why? Because we're, we're still carnal. That's all. We're still carnal. I am, you are, they are. So what do we have to do? We recognize it, and then we just get on with life. And we strive to work past it. Now, Jesus Christ <clears throat> came to magnify the law and make it honorable. How did he do this? Is there some way that we can understand uh, what Jesus was doing? I think so. And I think that it, uh, it does pertain to this, this conflict that, and struggle that we have with the carnal nature, between the spiritual and the carnal. Jesus Christ came to magnify the law, to uh, amplify it, and, and to make it more applicable and spiritual in its application to us. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 you're familiar with, uh, the three chapters, Sermon on the Mount. But I say unto you, Matthew 5:22, Jesus said, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall in, be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, and whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of the hell of fire. Now then, Christ said a great deal in Matthew 5.22. And it probably would be very good for us to uh, understand that what he is saying is the difference of what, what Christ is teaching here and the letter of the law is the difference between the spirit and the spiritual and the letter, the carnal. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy it, but to fill full. To fill it up to the brim. Make it where it's running over. For I verily say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass away from the law until all things be accomplished. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach him in so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except 
Your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because they believed in the letter of the law. They preached the letter of the law. And they tried to pick and choose and figure out ways to do their own will within the letter of the law. But, of course, Jesus Christ discerned the spirit and the attitude. And uh, he judged them. <clears throat> Actually, he didn't judge them yet. He told them that he would judge them. But he discerned the spirit that they were in. So, he said in verse 20, For I say unto you, Matthew 5, 20, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the king kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said by to them of old time, You shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That's the letter. You kill, you die. Be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, and whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of the hell of fire. So what he is saying, look, there are, there are um, shall we say, um, different levels of commitment that an individual who is just angry, that's the first step toward murder. And Christ recognized that. But the individual then who, who vocalizes his anger to his brother and who says, and you're worthless. Or maybe he'd put it if he is, quote, converted, you're carnal. You see, that individual shall be in danger of the council, and whosoever shall say, you fool, that is, you nitwit, you uh, useless person, is in danger of hell fire. Why? Because in his heart, he has put that person to the point in, in the category of individuals who are judged to be destroyed. If, therefore... You are offering your gift at the altar. Verse 23, And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And this way you will be utilizing or demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, the power and the strength of the spiritual mind and the spiritual nature as opposed to the carnal. Agree with your adversary quickly, Christ taught, while you are in process, if you please. Last happily after, uh, the happily the uh, adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. You know, there are <clears throat> situations where uh, people pass up opportunities to, uh, uh, to, to, to settle a matter in a rather peaceful, harmonious, uh, beneficial way to their own hurt. It's happened again and again, and it will happen again and again. And then he speaks in, in Matthew 5 of so many uh, spiritual principles 
which are derived from the letter of the law. They are spiritual principles, and they are contained within the letter, but the letter is cold, and, and it, is, it, is not, it does not of itself amplify the law. It is just, that's it. Here it is. But Christ amplified it and uh, enlarged it. Verse 44, I say unto you, love your enemies. Wow, what a challenge. What a challenge. Verse 47, if you salute your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles the same? Of course. And so Jesus Christ amplified and magnified the law and demonstrated thereby the difference between the carnal and the, the spiritual. He speaks of forgiveness in the <clears throat> model prayer in the next chapter and how we are to, uh, to forgive others. He speaks of how we use our substance in verse 21, Matthew 6, 21, where he says, uh, beginning in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth consume, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For, because here's the, here's the reason why this is spiritually uh, correct. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's the difference between the carnal and the spiritual. The spiritual law, then, summed up by Christ, is, if we sum it up, and it was summed up by Christ very succinctly into two commandments, and one is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, Matthew 22, verse 37, and with all your soul and with all your mind, Matthew 22, 37. But that was also stated in the, in the letter of the law in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament as well. So, but what Christ is saying then he is restating and amplifying the spiritual principle that the spiritual mind will love the eternal God with whole heart, with every fiber of being, and with the mind, the intellect. This, he said, is the first, the great and first commandment. <clears throat> and the second, verse 39, is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, being concerned. You see, now, on these two commandments, the whole law hangs and the prophets. Because if we can't love our neighbor as ourselves, we can't love God because he created our neighbor and he loves our neighbor. For those who are spiritual, God's word is amplified first. Please understand what I mean here. The word of God is amplified, or rather applied first, to the self. This is the spiritual nature. It takes the word of God and applies it to the self. <clears throat> Whereas the carnal take the word of God and apply it to their neighbor first. But they don't understand. Because the law of God can't be applied that way. The law of God cannot be applied to judge your neighbor and not judge yourself or oneself. It is like a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways and it, it's either 
Both or not at all. Don't take the sword out and don't use it unless you intend to also apply it in your own behalf and apply it first to yourself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and quick to discern the thoughts and intent of the heart. And so, for those who are spiritual... Those who are spiritual understand that the application is first to the self. And then it applies to others. As I said earlier in Romans chapter 7 verse 18, uh, the Apostle Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul applied the law of God to himself and said he was a dead man in essence. I am dead. Now then. Through the Spirit of God, I live again. You know, this is uh, <clears throat> consistent with virtually uh, all of the Old Testament and every statement uh, that is inspired of God from uh, the beginning of time. Those who, uh, those who, uh, who manifested the Spirit and the working of the Spirit of God had the attitude... Uh, that is portrayed in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 2. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 2, the wisdom, I uh, presume in this case Solomon, says, Surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. Now, the man who penned that was a man of understanding and a man of discernment that was greater than most men. But in his own mind, in his own heart, in his own thinking, he viewed himself as more brutish than any man and, and lacking even the understanding of a common person. That man was coming to himself and understanding the human spirit the natural carnal man. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, verse 6, For we are all become as one that is unclean, and all our righteousnesses are as a polluted garment, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's understanding the carnal way, the carnal mind, coming to see oneself. Peter uh, understood. <clears throat> also, there was one point in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter, uh, when he came to uh, recognize uh, that Jesus Christ was so great and he was so small, fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, it's like the old saying, Hey, Get away from him because lightning may strike. You know, you, you've uh, heard people say uh, <clears throat> someone was lying so flagrantly that you better get away from that individual before God strike him with lightning. Especially when people do it in the name 
or presuming the authority of God. It's a good idea to separate from that individual enough that there's some, uh, some uh, oh, what's the term, uh, insulation, perhaps, <coughs> from the lightning bolt. So contrasting the carnal and the spiritual, I think one of the most uh, effective uh, ways to contrast it and show it and demonstrate it is, is in uh, chapter uh, 18 of Luke's account of the gospel. <clears throat> you know the story of the Pharisee and the, and, uh, the sinner. In Luke 18, verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I, I like the way that is stated. He prays with himself. God, I thank you that I am not as the rest of men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I get, <clears throat> and so on. But verse 12, 13, the publican standing afar off, he wouldn't even draw close, would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be you merciful to me, the sinner. And Christ said, I say to you, the man went down to, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled, but he that humbles himself shall be exalted. <clears throat> and when I judge another man and say, oh, you're carnal, or he's carnal, then I am exalting myself, and the whole objective is to, to exalt the self. You know, the Apostle Paul, again and again throughout his epistles, spoke of himself as the least of all saints. Ephesians 3.8, an example and case in point. In Ephesians 3.8, he speaks as it says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, was this grace given to preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul viewed himself very as very, very small in God's sight. And again and again, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul saw himself as carnal, as very small. Because he understood himself. Now, it is, I think, very important for us to come to understand that we have to wrestle with who and what we are individually. Our carnal nature and attitudes. And then, rather than judging and putting down and, and um, uh, speaking pejoratively of other people, rather we ought to speak and try to pray for them and as a brother, if possible, if possible, warn them. That's fair. That's not only fair, it's commanded. But how we do it is the challenge. How we do it is very, very critical. Have you ever noticed that when another individual <clears throat> has made a decision uh, in his or her mind, I am going to do this, and that decision is firm, and you oppose that decision because that decision is morally or spiritually wrong, 
and you oppose that decision head on, if that individual has made a, 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 a turned the switch in effect in the mind and made the decision, a head-on confrontation in effect is the least effective means of dealing with the problem. It is far better to challenge by a question or by example or by simply praying about the matter and trying to let that person understand and know that you do care, you're sorry they have made this decision, you're sorry where it's going to lead, but <clears throat> you are concerned for them and you, uh, you love them in spite of their decision. The Apostle Paul came to grips with what he was and uh, knowing what man may become, knowing the potential, that is, that spiritually, by having the Spirit of God indwelling, that we're to become sons of God in his family, Paul devoted himself to putting on Christ. And that's the terminology he used, put on Christ. Putting on the mind of Christ, the spirit and the attitude of Christ. Now, I think we would do well to follow Paul's example. And uh, I believe there are three puddings that we need to, right now, keep in mind. Number one pudding is putting away our self-righteous, vain attitudes. And, and I believe that that is something that we each and every one have to struggle to fight against. A uh, self-righteousness and vanity. <clears throat> this, uh, this 15 or 16 page letter just, I mean, it just comes screaming at me. The self-righteousness of, uh, of, uh, uh, of the writer, the author. And, put, and he judges every individual and every group and the leader of every group. And, and uh, he, he defines all of these things. And he goes to Scripture and demonstrates from Scripture how it applies to us. And not once is there any reference to, well, you know, I myself have had a struggle with this and, and whatever. It isn't there. And I, I think that... <clears throat> It is a warning that we must put away self-righteousness and vanity of our minds. The second putting is putting on the character and the attitude and the nature of Christ. And we can only do that by the Spirit of God. Um, and we can only come to know the mind of Christ by, by understanding the intent of his personal example and teaching. If, if we put our thinking into what he taught, if we try to put our thinking into what he did and put it into the context of our will, forget it. It's not going to work. Just can't. And the third putting is putting away our judgmentalism, which reflects our envy, our prejudice, and it leads to contention and strife. Now, each of us is carnal. And we will be carnal so long as we are carnal, that is, in this flesh. 
That's just the way it is. So we accept that. I, I think we must accept that. I think it's folly not to accept it. I think one of the most objectionable aspects of, carna- of carnality is judgmentalism. And that is pointing the finger while justifying, of course, <clears throat> the self. I'm okay. I'm fine. You're bad. So, I will conclude by saying the next time someone tells you <clears throat> that I am carnal, you can say, yes, you're right, he is, and he also wears glasses.